Father, we desperately need to meet with you. Our faith is flickering. We need you to use the text to make it a blazing fire. Our affections are waning. We need you to infuse us with an awakening desire for thee. Our will to obey is weakening. We need you to give us a steel spine to obey no matter what the cost. Our concern for the lost is spotty. We need you to make us soul conscious. Left to ourselves, we are in bad shape. Left to ourselves, we are unconcerned. Left to ourselves, we are pigs wallowing in the mud, and we like it. Left to ourselves, wait. Jesus, you have not left us to ourselves. You came to us. You came to redeem our souls, to die as us, for us. On Calvary, you took the penalty for our sins and purchased for us freedom. You have not left us alone. You sent your blessed Holy Spirit to abide in us, to give us fuel for the flickering flame, to give us new desire for the waning affections, to give us strength to the weakening obedience. Dear Father, show us from this text that we may have a weak hold on you, but you have an eternal hold on us. God, that's our corporate plea. Now a personal plea. I would think with how many times I've stood before your people that I would become less and less dependent upon you. But here I am again before your flock and I'm just as dependent on you in this moment as I've ever been. I feel the weight of my task to bring your word to your people. As I open the text... Would your spirit begin opening hearts? As I labor, help it not merely to be in the flesh, but in the spirit. From the corporate plea to the personal plea, this is what you have, God. Your people pleading. Amen. Before I exposit this chapter, let's answer two questions. What's in this chapter? Why do I need this chapter? What's in this chapter? Why do I need this chapter? First, what's in this chapter? <laughs> David is fighting the Ammonites. It's the longest war in David's career. Most scholars believe it, it, it carries from chapters 10 through 12. All of that happened during the Ammonite Wars. Kyle, didn't we cover all of, David war, all of David's wars in chapter 8? <laughs> yes. But that was the big picture. Now the narrator is zooming in and we are watching one particular war. Here's what else is in the text. A royal funeral, long black beards, naked faces, men in pink tutus, and an act of kindness that leads to the death of 40,000 people. First, what's in this chapter? Second, why do I need this chapter? Well, you need it because the kindness of this king leads us to the kindness of God. Why do you need this chapter? Because some of you are living with unconfessed sin. And the kindness of God will lead you to repentance. Why do you need this chapter? Because some of you are hurting like you've never hurt before. You've gone through a divorce, 
a miscarriage, someone making a false accusation about you, your adult child making more dumb decisions, your health crumbling, your job a disaster, all of that. I have absolutely no direct application for any of those situations. But I want you to see how God's word ministers to your need despite specific reference to your specific struggle. His word is your meat and drink. God's word meets you wherever you are and sustains you. Kyle, is this another war scene in the Bible? So you're telling me this text doesn't directly address anything I'm, I'm dealing with. Friend, God can use any portion of his word at any time in your life to sustain you. You're not sustained. Understand, you're not sustained by getting an answer to your particular question. You're sustained by hearing his voice. When I come to a text like this that does not yield super practical applications, I don't sweat it. Because I know you are mature enough in Christ to realize that God is revealing his heart through this battle scene. Something in his heart that you must discover to have an appropriate view of him. This text is worth it because on the other end, you will know your God better. So let's get after it. Verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died. And Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father has dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, died. We don't know if this was sudden or expected, if he was killed in battle or died peacefully at home. All we know is that he died and his son is taking over the operation. When there is a change of sovereigns, it's usually the occasion for a diplomatic visit. David sends his representatives, his ambassadors, to give their condolences to the son on the death of his father. This is surprising, but apparently Nahash had been loyal to David in the past. We don't know anything about this event. It's not recorded for us in the Bible. It's a missing moment. We do know Nahash was a wicked warlord. Once he surrounded the city of Jabesh-Gilead and tried to starve out the residents and threatened to gouge out all their right eyes. Saul's first act as king was to save this city. He did. He came through and defeated Nahash but did not kill him. Most scholars agree that years later when Saul turns mad and makes David an enemy of the state, an outlaw, a fugitive on the run for 10 years, sometime during that period, Nahash provided refuge and logistical support for David. Which explains why when David became king, he has a standing treaty with Nahash and the Ammonites. David is now seeking to renew that treaty with Nahash's son. David wasn't scared of the Ammonites. He knew he could roll them. He simply wanted to know, he simply wanted the son to know that, that he, will show his, he will show kindness to him just like he showed to his father. Uh, he's not going to take their territory now that the father is dead. 
So there's these official diplomats sent by David. It's a convoy. The Old Testament equivalent of black limousines with Israeli flags waving on the front corners. He's not sending warriors. He's not sending men of war. He's got all those. However, he's sending dignified representatives. They step out holding flowers. That's what you bring to a funeral. With compassion and reverence, they say, on behalf of King David, we give you these flowers and our condolences. David said your father was kind to him during a very trying time in his life, and he wants you to know that he's going to deal kindly with you. He will not attack you now that your father is gone. He will honor the original agreement. The, the word loyally here in the text is hesed. It speaks of God's kindness, his steadfast love. David is extending God's kindness to Hanun. The king's kindness extended. Verse 3. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? They are insinuating that David is lying. This whole procession is nothing but a sham. King Hanun, are you really so gullible to believe these ambassadors? David knows the kingdom is weak and he's spying us out, waiting for the right moment to attack. These political advisors are making the new king look naive if he doesn't agree with their assessment. They are swaying the king, creating distrust and suspicion. The text seems to allude to the fact that Hanun didn't at first hold this position. He put flowers next to the casket and said, please tell David thank you. But the advisors are changing his opinion, creating suspicion. This new king, obviously insecure in his new position, is without the political wisdom of his father, and he decides to act. Verse 4. So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. For the flowers, Hanun could have sent back a thank you card, but he decides to go in another direction. He's going to send David's men back in a dishonorable fashion, especially for that culture. These diplomats had long, black, thick beards. Hanun and his men forcibly hold them down while someone with a knife shaved them. And they didn't use shaving cream either. There were cuts and scrapes everywhere, bleeding on the cheek and bleeding on the neck. The text says Hanun cut off half the beard. He, he didn't take scissors and cut off six inches of the beard, but vertically cut off half the beard. One side of the face, full beard. The other side, clean-shaven, bloody face. This is a culture where beards were a source of male identity. With the exception of the Egyptians, none of these Middle Eastern men shaved. This was demasculating them. It's masculinity shaming. The Jewish men in Leviticus uh, chapter 19 verse 27 were commanded not even to trim the beard. This was an attack on their manhood and also an attack on their religious identity. To this indignity was added another. 
The men had long flowing robes, clothing fitting for someone representing the king. Hanun cut off the bottom of the robe around the waist, exposing their buttocks and private part. He sent them on their way. They're forced to to walk back 40 miles exposed and humiliated. Naked face, naked waist. You had first masculinity shaming, now sexual shaming. Just like the beard shaving had religious implications, I think this one did as well. Jewish males, were, they wore God's law hanging on the corners of their garments. So Hanun cut off God's word. This whole event was a mockery of David's kindness. You send men to mourn my dad's death? Fine. I'll rip their clothes and shave them and put them in mourning. He turned this entire thing into a parody. The king's kindness extended. The king's kindness rejected. He refused to find refuge in the king. Hanun rebuffed the king's act of kindness. And he did it in a very insulting manner. And you might be snickering and thinking, I mean, this is sort of a practical joke. I mean, he's, he's basically making them stand on the side of the road naked holding a sandwich board. I mean, and it could have been worse, right, Kyle? He didn't do what his dad used to do, gouge out the right eyes of people. I'd rather lose my pants than my eyes. What's the big deal here? The big deal here is that this was an act of aggression, a treacherous act. David's men were diplomats. A diplomat is a person who represents an entire people. There were rules on how these men were to be treated. They had diplomatic immunity. This is not merely insulting the ambassadors personally, but provocatively violating their diplomatic status. This act was Hanun spitting in the face of David. It's a declaration of war. This is comparable to ripping a soldier's uniform and burning the stars and stripes. And oh, it's about to be on. Verse 5. When it was told David, he sent to meet them. Who is the them? The, these naked face, naked waist men. He sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. David models incredible compassion for these men. He doesn't let them reach Jerusalem. He meets them on the way. Uh, There they are walking, covering with their hands. And and they have red-faced, embarrassed, heads down, ashamed. When you get in a fight and in the end, you don't have pants on, you lost. If I were David and these ambassadors came to me and said, hey, I, I know it may not look like I hit him hard and I gave him a black eye. I'd be like, I, I don't want to hear that. Where are your pants? How you let a man punk you like that? Leave you all embarrassed. I can't believe you coming back wearing a pink tutu. I knew I shouldn't have sent you. This is going to look real good to the other nations. You looking like a, a male ballerina. That's how I would have responded. But I'm not the king. And here's how the king responds. Gentlemen, I know you're embarrassed. I know you were not expecting that response from the Ammonites. Neither was I. 
I want to apologize for sending you into that situation. Here's what I want you to do. Take these robes and put them on. Then go to Jericho and stay there until your beards grow back. I don't want your wife and kids to see you like this. See, church, the king deals with their embarrassment and their exposure. David doesn't further shame them. He cares for them. He saves them from embarrassment. He, he clothes them. Jericho was not rebuilt at this time, so it was not really an inhabited city. They could go there and camp out until their beards came back and until they again looked presentable. In an honor and shame culture, this kindness on David's part was unmatched. Verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. Let's pause here. Here's the bottom line. When you reject the king's kindness, you will face the king's wrath. Hanun and the Ammonites knew they became repugnant to David. David gave them the stank eye. He growled at them every time he saw them. David despised them. The, the king's kindness extended, that's verses 1 and 2. The king's kindness rejected, that's verses 3 through 5. The king's wrath revealed, that's verses 6 through 19. Verse 6, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and, and hired the Syrians of Bethrahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maachi with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. Realizing the Israelites could easily mop the floor with them, the Ammonites decide to hire mercenaries. And a parallel account, 1 Chronicles, reveals that they paid 1,000 talents of silver for these men. A, a talent was 75 pounds. So that's 75,000 pounds of silver. That's the weight of a, a railroad boxcar, a fire truck, 15 African elements. That's a lot of silver. The Ammonites were brutal people, but they knew they, they didn't have a strong army. They needed help. They went out and bought some 33,000 men from four other foreign armies. This means it's now five armies on one. Verse 7. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. You remember Joab. David's number two man, his top general. Also, David's sister's son, his nephew. Joab never lost a battle, never. He was a beast. David summons Joab and he says, gather the elite forces. We have troops mounting against us. It seems Israel is primarily on the defensive and the Ammonites are primarily on the offensive. Uh, Joab gathers the mighty men. This elite group of men who are mentioned later in the book. They are your Delta Force, your SEAL Team 6, verse 8. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men... He put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come 
and help you. The Ammonites are there, and the hired army is back there. Joab, the strong military tactician, sees himself surrounded. He's got armies in front of him and armies behind him. So he decides to divide his army. Strategically deploy his forces to provide the best flexibility. The Syrians, the hired guns, were tougher. So Joab said, I'll fight them. Little brother, the, the Ammonites aren't as strong, so you take the B squad and you fight them. If the Syrians are too strong for me, you turn around and help me. If the Ammonites are too strong for you, I will turn around and help you. And I really like this scene. Brothers fighting back to back, having one another's back. And just before the armies go out to go out, Joab, he wants to give them a rallying speech. And he does in verse 12. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, this is the only place in the chapter where the name of God is mentioned. In fact, it's the only speech in this chapter. Now, John Calvin thinks Joab was trusting the Lord here. John Piper believes the same and preached this text telling his hearers to risk things for God. That's what 1st and 2nd John said about it, but what about 3rd John? John MacArthur. Well, Johnny Mac rarely preaches Old Testament narrative, so he hasn't gotten around to preaching this text yet. But I am going to have to disagree with 1st and 2nd John. I don't think this is a bright spot for Joab. Everywhere he's mentioned in the Bible, it's in a negative light. In fact, David put him on a hit list at the end of his life. Joab did kill Abner and almost ruined the reunification of Israel. This is the iron-nerved, hard-hearted, vindictive, blood-spilling, look-out-for-number-one military man suddenly spouting theology? Was this a foxhole religion? Is he under duress? So now he talks about God? Was he arousing religious feelings in his people because he knew they loved God in his cause? Joab was very much a nationalist. But I'm just not sure he was a Yahweh follower, a Christian. But the truth is the truth, no matter if it comes from the lips of a donkey or the lips of a self-centered man. God employs interesting people to move forward his unfolding drama of redemption. Here... I think Joab understands his own bloody calling in God's unfolding history. The war will consist of two battles. Here's the first battle, verse 13. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians. And they, the Syrians, fled before him. <laughs> Joab's show of force made them withdraw quickly. Now if I were the Ammonites who hired them, I want my 75,000 pounds of silver back. I paid you to fight. Verse 14, And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. This first battle was hardly a battle. The enemies of God's people ran off in full retreat. They turned tail and, and ran for dear life. But those hired, some of those hired men, those battle-tested Syrians, were not so persuaded to abandon their hostilities. Now for the second battle in this war, this war, verse 15. 
But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shabak, the commander of the army of Hadad Ezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan. Now a little commentary here. Notice David went out himself in this battle. He didn't in the last one, but he, he's going out in this one. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. David and his men killed 700 chariot drivers and 40,000 horsemen. It was a complete slaughter. They felt the wrath of the king. Verse 19, And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. I like that last phrase. The Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. I'm never going to be on your team again. You always lose. Israel gained political dominance and economic advantage. The Ammonites are now on their own. We will have to wait until later in the book to find out what happens to them. But that's the exposition. Now I want to give you some summary statements. This will help to bring the passage home. Summary statement number one. This chapter reveals God's heart for the nations. This chapter reveals God's heart for the nations. David desired to show God's kindness to Hanun. The English word loyally, David desired to deal loyally with him, is the Hebrew word hesed. Now we talked about that last week. It's God's covenant kindness. Hesed is the controlling theme over both chapters. Let's chart it out. The king's kindness or hesed. It, 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 it is the theme of 2 Samuel 9. Hesed is the theme of 2 Samuel 10. In chapter 9, the king's kindness was extended to the son of a king, Mephibosheth. In, in chapter 10, it was also extended to the son of a king, Hanun. In chapter 9, the kindness was offered to a prince inside of Israel. He was a Jew. In chapter 10, the kindness was offered to a prince outside of Israel, a Gentile. In chapter 9, the, the kindness, there was kindness toward the house of Saul. In chapter 10, there was kindness toward the house of Nahash. In chapter 9, it's a kindness received. In chapter 10, it's a kindness rejected. Mephibosheth ate at the table. He received the kindness. Hanun rejected the kindness. We see in these two chapters God's heart for the nations. God's kindness to the nations. He's a missionary God. I think A.W. Pink is wrong when he suggests this was political and David had no business being kind to Hanun. David is demonstrating the heart of God. God's desire to deposit his kindness among other nations. Hanun from the Ammonites did not receive the Lord's kindness. But someone from the Ammonites did. Someone followed Yahweh. And we know that from Revelation, some from every nation, tribe, people, and language will be before the throne of God. God didn't just start going to the nations in the New Testament. 
He presented his kindness to them all throughout the Old Testament. Some received that kindness and some rejected that kindness, but it was always the heart of God to reach the nations. God's grace and kindness offered to Gentiles. That didn't start in the New Testament. Read Jonah. Missions doesn't belong to the New Testament. Missions belongs to God. Now let me ask you some penetrating questions. Do you, like your God, have a heart for the nations of the world? Desire for them to experience God's hesed, His kindness. There are places in this world where I could take you up in a helicopter and drop you. And, and you could walk for hours, walk for miles, walk for days without ever finding a church, without ever meeting a Christian, without ever meeting one person who has ever heard the name Jesus. And you say, Kyle, well, people in Tennessee and Kentucky are just as lost as those in the Amazon. Yes, that's true. But we are not dealing with levels of lostness. We are dealing with accessibility to the gospel. There are 7,000 UPGs, unreached people groups. Many of them are trying to be saved. They have altars. Now, God does not call everyone to leave home and go to the nations. But I'm convinced he is calling more than are going. That's why I never encourage you to pray, Lord, should I go? Rather, I challenge you to pray, Lord, why should I not go? Why should I stay? Another question. Do you model God's heart for the nations before your children and grandchildren? Do you pray with them over specific unreached people groups? Do you pray that God would use them to have a part in an unreached group becoming reached? John Falconer said, I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. The Ammonites were a UPG, an unreached people group. Summary statement number two. You can preach God's saving grace from this chapter. You can preach God's saving grace from this chapter. Jesus never preached from the New Testament even once. Did you know that? Every time Jesus wanted to convince someone he was God, he went to the Old Testament. The first century people got saved not by reading the New Testament, but the Old. Chapters just like this. In this chapter, we see the offer of grace followed by the rejection of grace. David extended God's grace to Hanun and Hanun rejected it. Dear one, the sovereign is on the throne and you will either find refuge in this king or you will refuse him. There are only two options. Those who despise the kindness of the king will face the wrath of the king. Those not willing to place themselves under the authority of the king will be tread down by this king. If there's resistance where there should be repentance, then there will be wrath where there could have been grace. Bottom line, when you reject the king's kindness, you will face the king's wrath. Grace sits on a throne. 
Grace isn't a weak sister. When you reject the king's kindness, you will face the king's wrath. But when you receive the king's kindness, you will feast on the king's bounty. You will always, like Hanun, find advisors who tell you not to submit to the king. But they will go down with you in the end. Dear one, is this grace starting to move you? Is it starting to appeal to you? Is your heart strangely warmed? That's because this is irresistible grace. Summary statement number three. I hope you've enjoyed all of David's successes because they're coming to an end. This chapter hints at it. I hope you've enjoyed all of David's successes because they're coming to an end. This chapter hints at it. If David was a stock, some of you like to invest, if David was a stock and you invested in him while he was keeping sheep, then it's been a steady climb and you've made lots of money. However, Stock in David Incorporated is about to plummet. After next week, it's a different David. From there on out, it's a different David. This chapter hints it foreshadows what will come later. The kingdom will be divided. Did you notice in this passage that it divides everything? Beards, clothes, the enemy army the Israeli army. It's a thematic introduction to all the inner division coming later. It's prepping you for the division to come. Summary statement number four, and this is our last one. What the Ammonites did to David's representatives, we did to God's representative. Listen carefully. What the Ammonites did to David's representatives, we did to God's representative. David's men had their clothes ripped off and their beards shaved. But God the Father sent his only son, Jesus, and they beat him and stripped him of his clothes. And according to Isaiah 56, one of the ways they dishonored him was by plucking his beard. We are a planet full of Ammonites who rejected God's hesed, his kindness. The king of the ages, God, sent his representative to make peace with us. And we killed him. But the twist, this representative came to die. He came to save those who rip clothes and pluck out beards. He came for sinners. He's a savior. Father, Thank you for sending your son to a planet of Ammonites to die for us, as us, in place of us. We are unworthy of your missionary heart. What kindness, what grace, what a savior for so great a sinners. Amen.